I'm going to let you be seated this morning for our Bible reading because it's a little longer than usual. And I also want you to uh, take the Bible, the Pew Bible, uh, out of the rack in front of you and turn to page 298 in the New Testament. So it's in the very back of your Bible. It's where Revelation is. It's the last book of the Bible. And we are going to read along together. You will do so silently and I will read aloud. Um, And I just want to warn you that when we're finished with the reading and we return the Bibles to the rack, to the pew, there's going to be a loud thump. There's going to be a lot of thumps, okay? Um, So that'll be our amen to the reading this morning every time we hear a thump. But this is a continuation of our study of these uh, letters from Jesus to his churches in Asia But ultimately, as we have said throughout this series, he is speaking to all the churches, all seven of these churches and to the church today. So this is very relevant and important for us as we listen to Jesus speak today. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you as your works deserve, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, 
I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my work to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my Father to the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's sing together this prayer of illumination. This is our prayer this morning that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, our minds, would open our eyes to see Jesus and to hear his voice speaking to us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I read recently an article that uh, was kind of like mind-blowing to me. Uh, The author was saying that we are very close to a threshold in technology that will make it impossible for us to distinguish reality from virtual reality. A false image or video of a person or a situation created by very advanced software operating on a computer, of course, um, will be able to create things that, that we think are real but really are not real. And the author said the uh, implications uh, of of this advancement will be unimaginable. And two of the things that were mentioned in the article was the uh, proliferation of fake news where it will be impossible to know if something really did happen or if it was invented, manufactured by someone to appear real. Or in the case of a court of law, it will be possible to fabricate evidence that could either convict or exonerate someone, and it will be impossible to know if that is in fact true or if it is false. The experts say there is a day coming unless we figure out a way to stop it or to address it in which we may no longer be able to distinguish what is true with our own eyes. That's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? A 2016 cover story of The Economist, which is an international magazine, was entitled, Yes, I'd Lie to You, The Post-Truth World. And the article analyzed the dishonesty that is wreaking havoc in our world today, in politics, in history, in journalism, social media, and in other areas of daily life. One person quoted in the article said this, Right now... It pays to be outrageous, not to be truthful. 
The article also highlighted one of the most effective ways to tell lies in our world today. By hiding the truth in a glut of information. Information glut is the new form of censorship in the world. We all know that, that we are bombarded through various forms of media, through computers, through smartphones, through Facebook news feeds. You, you have more thrown out you every single day than you could possibly ever read or take in. And in totalitarian countries such as China, authorities don't try to censor everything that is coming into the country. It's, it's virtually impossible to do that. So what they have been doing is they flood the internet, they, they flood social media with distracting information so, so that it is impossible for people to know what is really true and what is false. Groucho Marx, the comedian of the previous century, once said, Who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? The day is fast approaching when our own eyes will not be able to discern the truth. This is very troubling. This is at the heart of today's letters. When Jesus speaks to two churches who had truth decay, as Theo called it in the children's sermon this morning. Uh, both churches are commended for their faithfulness. Pergamon uh, is holding fast to the name of Jesus. Uh, Thyatira is a church that is loving, it is serving, it is enduring, yet both had lost their ability to discern truth from error. And it affected um, their worship, what was appropriate, inappropriate, what was idolatry, what was true worship of the living God. It also affected their moral practices, their sexual ethics, the food they ate, the food they refused to eat. Uh, all of that figured into this. It was a confusing culture to live in. And the same is true today for us in so many ways. Uh, the church has conformed to culture in, in more ways than we can really count, frankly. And people from other countries, from other parts of the world uh, who are Christians come to America and sometimes they are astonished at the compromises that we have made with culture. Uh, and especially in the area of materialism. But there are other ways as well. And sexual ethics is one of those areas where I think the church has been tempted and at times has succumbed to the, the compromise with culture on what it means to live a chaste life, a holy life with regard to sexuality. And so our United Methodist Church is meeting for four days in St. Louis, Missouri. Today they get down to business. They have two more days. Uh, I was grateful that they spent all day yesterday in prayer together trying to figure out what a biblical ethic of, of sexuality is, particularly when it comes to same-sex unions, the LGBTQ agenda that we have been wrestling with as a denomination for nearly 50 years. Now, the culture has pretty much settled this issue, but churches are, are struggling with it. Some have made dramatic changes in, in what they say is appropriate or God-honoring, holy expressions of sexuality. But the United Methodist Church has held the line on a traditional ethic when it comes to sexuality. 
But we have voices in the church that want to change that. And every four years at General Conference, there's been a lot of debate and, uh, and frankly, disunity among the delegates over this issue. And roughly two years ago, the bishops at the urging of the delegates at conference said, help us with this. We, we, need, we need an intervention. Because since 1972, we have, we have been fighting over this issue of homosexuality and beyond. And so we called a special session of general conference. I think I read somewhere that it was unprecedented. It had never been done before. Um, and so we've got all these people gathered in St. Louis trying to figure this out. And not everybody's on the same page. We had an informational setting uh, session here in the sanctuary a couple of weeks ago and explaining the plans that were set forth by a commission uh, on the way forward, trying to find some consensus, some agreement, so we could stay together as a church family, as a denomination. And that's why we've been asking you to pray. Uh, we have asked you to pray for our United Methodist Church um, and pray for our delegates, especially from Kentucky, that have gone to represent us in those decisions. But, but you need to understand that historically, the United Methodist Church for 250 years, say, has, uh, has its roots in the Wesleyan movement, has, has used four sources for, for our doing theology of formulating our beliefs, saying what we believe the Scripture teaches. And of course, Scripture, the Bible, is foundational. It is the norming norm. It, it is the, uh, the last word in many ways. It, it's the revelation of God. God speaks to us through Holy Scripture. Uh, but, but we've learned that there are other ways that God speaks and helps us to understand the Bible. And tradition is one of those ways. A lot of what we do in worship and as a church is not found in the Scripture. Our celebrations of Christmas and Easter are not found in the Bible. Um, the hymn books that we use and the songs we sing, those are part of Christian tradition. There's a long, long list of things that, that are a part of our beliefs that, that, that we hold to that are not coming from the Bible but maybe based on principles from Scripture or just from, from complementary traditions that make our faith more meaningful. And tradition is good. It can also blind us to a new thing God wants to do and can hold us back when we need to change. But the other two areas that often get overlooked are experience and reason. And experience, Wesley said, was very, very important. Uh, but, but it needed to have some boundaries placed on it. The fire needed to stay in the fireplace, in other words. There, there were times when, when experience, though, enlivened the faith. And he believed the Holy Spirit was the means of that, um, that, that work of grace that came through Christian experience. And that's one of the things I've loved about Methodism, um, is that we encourage people to experience God, to know God to be expressive in worship and in service, to feel deeply and experience in great and diverse ways what it means to walk with Jesus Christ as his disciples. And sometimes our experience sheds light on the scripture and helps us to understand it better. And the fourth one is reason. And reason is just using the brain, the common sense, the intellect, the powers of critical thinking 
to, to examine the Scripture in light of what is going on in the world and what people have experienced. And these last two have figured prominently in the proposals that have been brought to change how we view homosexuality. What Christians who, who walk with Jesus, what they say their sexual orientation is and how they experience uh, intimacy and, and relationships with others. This, this is in the realm of experience and even to some degree reason. And much of that has been shaped by culture. There's no question about it. Our culture has pretty much settled this issue, but a lot of churches continue to struggle with it, and we're one of them. What is true is not always easy to discern, is it? What is truth sometimes is, is uh, a bit gray, it's shadowed, it's nuanced. And so to say that all truth is absolute uh, when it comes to the Scripture needs to be qualified with the fact that there are things in the Bible that we don't fully understand and we need to be careful about making assertions from the Scripture that, um, that are open to, to differences of interpretation and of opinion. But here in these two churches, we see that, that uh, the culture in which they lived had greatly influenced who they became. And it's not surprising because the church was small. It was a small minority in light of this, this great metropolis. Pergamum, for example, was positioned on the top of a conical-shaped mountainous hill. It was a very secure place uh, because of that, rising 1,000 feet above a nearby plain. Uh, they had a massive library with over 200,000 scrolls. These are not books printed at a printing press. That hadn't been invented yet. These were handwritten books, if you will, that were treasured and housed at their library. So this city became an important center of learning and of culture. There was also a temple that had been erected to Caesar Augustus. You ever heard the name Caesar Augustus? We hear that every Christmas, don't we? And the first place of worship that was devoted to emperor worship was found at Pergamon. Uh, it is likely that this Antipas that is mentioned in verse 13 here was martyred because he refused to worship the emperor Domitian. And uh, Pergamon was, was, was in addition a, a, a place where many temples to the Roman, the Greek and Roman pantheon had been erected. So pagan worship was very common, widespread in this city. And so Jesus concludes here, he says, this is where Satan lives. This is where Satan's throne is located. Now, Thyatira had a similar kind of problem. In fact, the, the letters uh, resemble one another in several ways, but, but they were noted for their worship of Apollo. And, and this later evolved into emperor worship as well. It was a gateway city. It's not located on a secure mountaintop the way Pergamum was. So when people were waging war against Pergamon, when they were going against this stronghold on this mountaintop, they passed through, often passed through, uh, Thyatira, and so it was destroyed by war and rebuilt many times over the centuries. It was a blue-collar, blue working-class kind of city. 
And it too was brimming, brimming with idolatrous and immoral worship. And the churches in both places had compromised, compromised who they were. Even though they had many strengths, they had compromised who they were to the culture, the prevailing values of the culture. From the Old Testament, Jesus mentions two false teachers. We don't know for sure. I doubt that, that these persons had these names in the community of faith. Um, they were just labeled this way. They were given the names of two people out of the Old Testament who had really bad reputations for leading others astray. One was, was Balaam, whose name literally meant a corrupter of the people. And then there was Jezebel. By the way, have you ever met a woman named Jezebel? Anybody ever named their child that? Anybody have a first cousin named Jezebel? <laughs> no, we don't do that, do we? I mean, her name will live in infamy forever and ever. She was a conniving, immoral woman and, and was a worshiper of idols. And then Jesus throws in these Nicolaitans, and we don't have time to go into all their beliefs, but it was one of those challenges, those heresies that rose up within Christianity in the first and second century. Now, these churches were doing a lot of good. Um, Pergamon loved the name of Jesus. Uh, they, they had uh, service ministry going on in the church and in the community, but both lacked a doctrinal and, and biblical, a theological maturity about them. They lacked a proper foundation. I think I've told some of you all this before, but early in our marriage, so this would have been 40 years ago, Connie and I lived in a small house on my dad's farm. Dad had bought 33 acres of land, um, had built a beautiful home on it that overlooked the Caney Fork River, and until the house was finished, he and mother lived in this little shack, and that's what it was. It was a shack. They did some remodeling on the inside, put a kitchen in it, um, and um, I can't remember if the bathroom was there or if they added it, but it was horrendous. It was terrible. It, the bathroom was on, was on what used to be a back porch, and the tub was at a slant, so the water ran down to one end of it, and when you pulled the, the cork, you know, the stopper out of it, you had to, had to brush it upstream <laughs> to get it to go out. Um, I mean, some outhouses probably would have been better than this bathroom, but we lived there for two years in utter bliss, right, Connie? I mean, it was just wonderful, no question about it. But, uh, but this house was built without a foundation. The floor joist of that little shack sat on the dirt. Anybody ever lived in a house that didn't have a foundation? Sue James admitted, okay, Stephen admitted it, yeah. Um, yeah, um, Sue James told us this morning that she lived in a house that didn't have a foundation. The, the, I mean, you could see through the cracks in the floor in some places, you could see the dirt underneath the house. And uh, so, you know, the house was not square, and the doors didn't close right, and the windows might open but not close, and sometimes they wouldn't, they wouldn't open at all. Uh, because the house had a tendency to creak and move. And honestly, I, I had fear at times that a, that a storm would just like blow it up or like blow it away and like the Wizard of Oz, you know, when Dorothy was carried up into the clouds. I mean, it, it was that kind of house. 
My dad eventually jacked it up, put some beams under it, and then built a, a stone foundation around it. But this house had no foundation while we were living in it. Ed Stetzer of Lifeway Research wrote a few years ago these words. He says, America can be proud of many things, innovation, generosity, and entrepreneurial spirit, which are unsurpassed. Yet when it comes to our nation understanding one of the greatest gifts ever given to humanity, the Bible, we are moving from dumb to dumber. Okay? He's got the research to back this up. Biblical illiteracy in this country is just exploding. He says, and it's no laughing matter, both inside and outside the church, there is a problem. Non-Christians don't even have the general idea of the Bible they once did. Christians are not seeing the life change that real Bible engagement brings. The result is a nation in spiritual freefall. And while most cultural analysts point to such cul culprits as church leadership scandals and government failings, the true answers start with the foundational Word of God. I read another story, article this week, that was written about um, how vast numbers of young people are leaving Christianity once they grow up and go off to college. And they say that much of it has to do with children have no idea what they believe and why they believe it. Parents are not teaching them this. Uh, they're not in church as much as they used to because of all the competitive activities, the competing activities with, with church life. And that parents are not sharing their stories, their testimonies with their children. Their children, they, it's just something we do. We just go to church, but they don't have any confidence in Christ. They don't have a foundation, a biblical foundation. They don't understand what it means to be Christian. So why be Christian? You leave home, you leave the faith behind. And that is what's happening. The foundation, it's like living in a house without a foundation. And the storms of life come and it just explodes. It's gone. Jesus says that the remedy for these two churches is to repent. He says, repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the, with the sword of my mouth. Verse 16. And then he goes, he goes on um, to talk about, again, the sword, which is reminiscent of, of Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, where John tells us, that Jesus has this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This two-edged sword, these fiery eyes, these bronze feet, they are all used to describe Jesus as, as a strong man, as a judge, as someone with power and authority and, and discernment. And he is calling us to, to listen, to heed, to respond to his words. Jesus knows the church. We've seen that in Revelation. Jeremy mentioned it last week. I think I did the first week in this series. He knows what's going on in our churches. He knows what's going on in these two churches and how they've strayed from the truth. And he says if they do not repent, they will be judged. And the, the picture of judgment is severe. I mean, it's, it's almost embarrassing, this imagery of, of Jezebel, this harlot, this this mistress being thrown onto the bed and, and the church being adulterous in their relationship with this purveyor of falsehood, 
of false thought, theology, false belief, of, of lies. And then the children of this union being judged and destroyed. Five times Jesus uses the word repent here. And repent, repentance, to repent, means to turn around, to change directions, uh, to turn away from error and turn toward the truth, to embrace the truth. So the question I have for you this morning, are, are you full of truth? Is your life one of integrity? Um, are, are, are you a, a straight talker? An honest soul? And is your life grounded in the Scriptures? Do you study the Scriptures? Do you read your Bible? Do you memorize God's Word? Uh, every single follower of Jesus, every one of you that claims to follow Jesus ought to be in some kind of Bible study. It is not enough for you to show up for church for an hour every week or every two or three weeks, whatever you do. Uh, you will not mature in the faith. You will not be spiritually grounded. You will not have a foundation for life if you don't engage, as Ed Stetzer says, if you don't engage with the Scriptures on a regular basis. You know the new operating system on, Facebook, on, uh, on the iPhone tells us how much time we are spending using our phones. Have, have any of y'all noticed that? I mentioned this at 8.30. I went to my office, and while we were having Sunday school, I got my weekly reminder. I'm not going to tell you what it said. <laughs> I was a little embarrassed. And, and it'll break it down, and it will tell you how much time you spent with Instagram and Facebook and reading email and playing video games and surfing the web and buying stuff. All that is there. And there's just some stuff we don't need to know, right? We don't want to know. But actually, we do need to know it. Because it occurred to me this morning that if we spent a fraction of the time that we spent on these dumb phones that are called smartphones, if we spent a fraction of the time that we spend with those smartphones in, in the Word of God, um, studying the Scriptures and, and deepening our roots in Christ, uh, our lives would be transformed. And what I'm afraid is happening is our brains are being dulled. Our minds are being brainwashed. And we, we, are, being, we, we are being twisted in ways that God never intended to think and to act that are contrary to his truth. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate awaiting the sentence of death, this is what he said, Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Are you listening to Jesus? He is speaking to His church. He's speaking to you. Everyone, He says, who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And do you, know, do you remember what Pontius Pilate said in response to that? The skeptic, the unbeliever, Pontius Pilate, who will live in infamy as part of the Apostles' Creed forever and ever... Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? Oh, we know what is truth, right? Jesus said earlier to the disciples in the upper room before he was led away to Calvary to be crucified, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the life. And so we listen. We listen for the word of God 
in the life, in the example, and in the words of Jesus. The promise is given again to those who conquer. Uh, I'm just going to tell you what what he said to Pergamum, and then we're going to have a a response to this message this morning. But um, he said, I'm going to give you hidden manna, which has got to be Jesus himself, the bread of life, a white stone, which may refer to these stones that they would give to those who finish a competition, an athletic competition successfully. They got a stone that admitted them to the banquet, to the celebration. And then there was this new name that was engraved on the stone. And if you've done any reading in the Bible, you know that when God chooses a person for a special task, often he gives them a new name. And so a new name is given to his children, to his church. Uh, These Bibles that we read from uh, just a few moments ago were dedicated in 2011 to the memory of Dr. L.C. James, who was a longtime member of this church, wonderful man of God, who loved the Lord, a veterinarian in our community for many decades. And his family, Sue James and her family, gave these to the church at that time. And on that day when we dedicated them, we affirmed our beliefs in the scriptures in this way. And I, I'm going to invite you to join me in these words. So if you'll put that up on the screen, screen there, Daniel. Uh, let's read these words aloud together. We believe the Bible was written by at least 35 different persons under the inspiration of one, the Spirit, over a span of 1,600 years. It has 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. We believe the Bible is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to convict human hearts. The Bible cannot be understood and applied to our daily lives without the help of the Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth of God. The Bible is the primary source and authority for Christian faith and practice in the church. The Bible cannot be properly understood or applied without the tradition of the church, the use of one's reason, and the experience of its readers. We believe the Bible reveals Jesus Christ the living Word, Son of God, Savior of the world, the author and finisher of our faith. Methodists are a people of one book, but we do not worship the Bible. We only worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.